0: Today on Proof, we are talking about delis. Matzo ball soup, kosher dill pickles, pastrami on rye. We all know and love the American Jewish deli classics. Every week, Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side of Manhattan sells more than 15,000 pounds of pastrami. Yes, that's seven and a half tons of pastrami. But despite Katz's continued success, the fact is Jewish delis are a dying breed in America. Take New York City. In 1931, there were an estimated 2,000 delis in the Big Apple. Today, almost a century later, there's less than a few dozen. Even the big guys, including Carnegie Deli in Times Square and Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse, have closed in the last few years. For reporter Rebecca Rossman, the death of the deli is especially personal, and she joins us right now. Hey, Rebecca. Hello. So this is really a personal issue for you.
1: Yes. So I know New York City is the deli capital, and maybe L.A. is a close second. But I'm from Chicago, and I know you are too, Kevin.
0: Yep, I live right by Kaufman's in Skokie. I go there once a week.
1: So I wanted to take this episode to our hometown, to the delis I grew up eating at, along with some new ones. Delis were a pretty big part of my life growing up. Every weekend, I would go with my grandparents to this deli called Barnman Bagel, sort of a circus-themed deli. And I remember I would always have a bagel with lox, and my grandma would sometimes order matzo ball soup, and me and my sister would slurp those tiny plastic cups of coffee creamer. Sometimes our grandma would let us pour a tiny drop of her coffee into the creamer cups. She would say, here, you can have some coffee with your cream. Anyway... We were just one of hundreds of families that would come to Barnum & Bagel on the weekend, and it was always packed to the gills with all kinds of people, but probably most prominently with Jewish families like my own, and with grandparents, great-grandparents who still had memories tied to the quote-unquote old world, where they would eat these kinds of foods on a regular basis.
0: As great as the food is at these Jewish delis, Rebecca, it's really not just all about the food, right?
1: Exactly. The food was really only one small part of the equation. Delis have always been these familial, but also cultural spaces. The United States, you know, it has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel, especially Ashkenazi or Eastern European Jews. I'm Ashkenazi. Delis have long showcased our food, but also humor and style. And especially for secular Jews, meaning those who identify with Judaism, maybe culturally, but not necessarily religiously. Delis are kind of are houses of worship. They're this amazing preservation of my culture, so the thought of that being chipped away at is just devastating. My parents have a lot of stories and memories tied to delis. My mom, her name is Nancy, grew up on the northwest side of Chicago in the 50s and 60s, which was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood.
2: But I remember you we would go, like, to Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz Deli in Chicago. It was a very well-known place. There'd always be a line up the store. Like, You'd meet people that you knew, like you said, and but, the meals yeah. were, like,
3: was, uh,
1: huge. <sighs> but this is all changing. Ashkenaz and most of the other delis my mom grew up with have closed. Even the ones I grew up with. Barnum & Bagel, Gone. There used to be this place called The Bagel in our neighborhood. They had this amazing matzo ball soup and this huge bakery counter, also gone.
0: I used to be a restaurant critic at the Chicago Tribune, and it's a seriously tough business for these mom-and-pop restaurants, especially ones in immigrant communities. You can replace Jewish delis with a Korean noodle shop or a Turkish donor kebab shop or a Mexican taqueria. When the going gets tough, these family-run restaurants are usually the first to go. I live on Chicago's North Shore, and I love Jewish food. In fact, I'm a Chinese person who eats Jewish deli food on Christmas Day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, my family always eats Chinese food on Christmas Day. But yeah, there's some Jewish delis that are still hanging on, and some new ones in the pipeline too.
0: All of a sudden, I'm really craving a pastrami chicken liver sandwich from Kaufman's right now. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Kevin Pang, and this is Proof. The family farmers at Pete and Jerry's Organics are passionate about raising happy, healthy hens that produce the best eggs. Here's Pete and Jerry's farmer, Judith Klein, of Rockingham County, Virginia.
4: We've got scores of hens just outside, just pecking at any the little bugs that they can find. And my son loves
1: them. Like he'll go out and walk up to me like, Mom, I want to hold one.
0: Wow, your son's little hands are touching the eggs that are going into cartons shipped across the country. There's gotta be something that just feels so wonderful about it.
1: It is very rewarding, just overall. Taking care of the earth and taking care of our animals we've got these bright orange yolks. And that just is such a testimony to how much access they have to going outdoors.
0: So I hear you've got a family recipe for a blueberry cobbler that calls for using really good eggs.
1: So it's called Mama's Blueberry Cobbler.
4: Think back to something that just brings back the best memories. And this is exactly the feeling I get when I take a bite of this cobbler. Just gives this little crisp bite to the top of it. It feels like loss,
0: honestly. Find Judith's cobbler recipe and more about her family farm at PeteAndJerrys.com. That's Pete Ann, dot com. No matter where you are in your culinary career, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts offers professional training that can empower students to reach their full potential. Ranked the top 10 culinary school in America by USA Today, Escoffier blends classic culinary methods with a sound business foundation. They focus on understanding and implementing sustainable practices in the industry to help prepare students for life-changing careers. For more information, visit escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot
1: Let's go on a trip to the Windy City. I want to introduce you to some other members of my family. Starting with my great-uncle, Maury.
3: Hi, Uncle Maury. <laughs> Hello, darling. How are you? My name is Morris Rossman. In Yiddish, it's Meisher Shleimer Rossman.
1: I live in Paris now, but... I was home over the summer, and just to explain, every few weeks, my dad's side of the family— I have four uncles, plus siblings, cousins, and of course my Uncle Maury— meet at this other deli in the north suburbs of Chicago called Max and Benny's. What do you normally get?
3: What do I what?
1: What do you order?
3: Hey, whatever. You got a bunch of things.
1: But what's your favorite thing?
3: Oh, Reuben
5: sandwich or corned beef.
1: I'm more of a classic corned beef sandwich kind of gal myself, but no judgment to Uncle Maury, this is not a story about who has the best deli order. It's a story about the delicatessen, not just as a restaurant, but like I said earlier, a house of worship of sorts and why they're disappearing.
0: So I have a very basic question for you to start off, Rebecca. What exactly is a deli?
1: You know, surprisingly, that's not really a basic question. I got a lot of different answers to that question while I was reporting. Here's what some of the people I interviewed had to say.
6: I think my definition of a deli historically has been a place that has prepared meats, cheeses, salads, sodas, chips, make sandwiches.
7: I would say my definition is more like Jewish comfort food. You know
8: the white subway tile, the Formica tables, the loud clanging, the joking, the the kind of you know borscht belt shtick, you know Woody Allen, Mel Brooks type atmosphere.
1: That last voice you heard from is David Sachs. David is a Canadian journalist and author of the book Save the Deli.
8: Save the Deli is a book I wrote, gosh, almost fifteen years ago, and. You know, at the time, I was very young, but I was noticing that the Jewish delicatessen, which was something that I had grown up really eating at on a weekly basis, it was very much a part of the fabric of the culinary history, culture, day-to-day luncheon meats of my family. It was
1: disappearing. It was dying off. Like me, David grew up in a non-religious but very culturally Jewish household. And a big part of American Jewish culture in the 20th century at least involves spending a lot of time with family in big, crowded delis with these expansive menus, large booth tables. And
0: what about the food?
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skip to the food. You know, the Jewish deli menu, I mean, really at its most basic contains kind of and centers around sandwiches made of pickled, cured, and smoked meats, right? The Holy Trinity, I say, which is, you know, pastrami, corned beef, and uh, pickled tongue, or it could be um, salami, depending on your tastes.
1: For Save the Deli, David went to more than 200 delicatessens across North America and Europe. The inspiration for the book, which came out in 2009, came from a homework assignment, actually. He took this class in college called Sociology of Jews in North America, and everyone had to write a final term paper on really any topic related to Jews in North America.
8: And everyone was like, Holocaust, assimilation, all these serious things. And my friend Mitch and I were just like, oh, let's do it on delis.
1: So he and his friend go to a bunch of delis, talk to the owners, get some free meals out of it. They're having fun. But the owners point out how many of their peers have been forced to close over the years.
8: And it just became apparent that this was this, you know, vanishing species that was something that I loved. And so it... it, came out of that term paper, which I got a very good mark on, and just stuck with me as I began working as a journalist that I wanted to turn it into a book.
1: So through that research, Sachs came up with these four main theories that explain why this is happening now. I want to get into these theories, but before we talk about the decline of delis, I think we should understand the history here. So let's talk about the rise of delis.
8: Once upon a time, there were thousands and thousands of them. I mean, there were 3,500 in New York City alone in the 1930s.
1: At the turn of the 20th century, you had waves of Jewish immigrants coming into Ellis Island from Eastern Europe because they were fleeing persecution, first during the Bolshevik Revolution, then the Holocaust. People like Ziggy Gruber's grandpa came just after World War I. Today, Ziggy is a third-generation Delhi man.
5: I'm kind of the last of the Mohegans.
1: He owns a place in Houston, Texas called Kenny and Ziggy's. But it all started with his grandpa, who came from Budapest to Ellis Island by himself.
5: He was let go into the Lower East Side of New York, and he didn't know anybody. Nobody at all. In fact, he said he had a satchel that had basically his talus and a prayer book, and basically it was stolen. And he was hungry, so he would steal bread off of, you know, carts. And then one guy saw him do this and helped him out and said, hey, you need to get a job. Why don't you get a job in a restaurant? If you get a job in a restaurant, at least they'll give you one meal a day.
1: His grandpa started as a dishwasher and then from there worked his way up. Eventually, he had enough savings to open his own place.
5: They opened up during the height of the depression, uh, Delicatessen on Broadway. It was the first deli on Broadway, right next to the Brill Building, which that's where they wrote all the musical stuff for Broadway. And Walter Winchell used to eat there every morning, and he said in his column, either it was going to be the greatest sideshow that Broadway ever saw, or it will be a tremendous success. Thank God it was a tremendous success. And it was frequented by a lot of celebrities of the time, such as like uh, Ethel Merman and the Marx Brothers and all the Broadway elite.
1: And then he opened up another six or seven delicatessens across the New York area. And they were always packed to the brim, mostly with Ashkenazi Jewish families that had strong historic ties to this food. And this wasn't just a New York thing. —
2: When I was a kid, going out, like, families would go out. That would be a big source of entertainment, and often only one of the only sources of entertainment for family. — This is my mom, Nancy, again. Remember, she grew up on the west side of Chicago in the 50s and 60s. — And they'd see other families they knew. And if the younger generation started to not cook as much And uh, grandmas weren't cooking as much. They would have food that was familiar to them. And I think the food was more classic to what Jewish grandmothers made in Russia. Which is? I think, you know, they would make cooked food, potato-based soups, lots of soup was a big feature, and all the menus.
3: There were hundreds and hundreds.
2: Now this is Irving
1: Cutler. At the time I interviewed him over the summer, he was 98 years old. He's a Chicago historian specializing in Jewish history, and he also grew up on the West Side in the 20s and 30s.
3: It was a bustling, very vibrant area with uh pushcarts and stores and open stands.
1: He's talking about this neighborhood flea market called Maxwell Street. It was kind of like Petticoat Lane Market in East London or the Lower East Side of Manhattan.
3: You could buy anything there. You could buy used toothbrushes, rusty nails, old clothing, shoes that are out of style. You could buy uh, meats and produce. And on a Sunday, they would have something like 50,000 people would come uh, to shop on Maxwell Street.
1: In between market runs, people would stop inside their favorite neighborhood delis. I asked Irving Cutler about his favorite growing up.
3: It was a deli called Gold, and uh, it was near a Yiddish theater. And among those who ate there, because it was a really good deli, was Al Jolson and Sophie Tucker. And Georgie Jessel, they were all, of course, big in the entertainment field. And I understand gangsters used to come there, like Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik. And there were rumors that Al Capone used to eat there also.
0: Like Ziggy and your mom mentioned, it seems like delis at their height serve this mix of Jewish families, but also high-profile clientele looking for a tasty, cheap meal.
2: Exactly,
9: which just really contributed to the ambiance. Remember what I said earlier about delis being this hub for Ashkenazi Jewish culture? Humor and entertainment is a big part of that. Here's David Sachs.
8: The reason why you watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and they're always meeting at uh, the stage deli is because like, the people of that culture in the entertainment business in that day were very much associated with those areas. And so it, it there was this sort of natural mix of the two. And it shows that the Jewish deli was more, you know, it's about food, but it's about so much more. It's about a culture. It's about a people. It's about the way people talk, the types of jokes they make. I mean, that's as much an attraction to the Jewish deli as, you know, bread, mustard, and meat.
1: So as you can probably imagine, the decline of such places is like a punch to the gut. David Sachs told me that there are four main reasons for the deli decline. To be honest, the first two are kind of obvious, but let's go through them. Reason number one. Running a deli is a lot of work that comes with low returns, even for the big guys. Big, expansive menus, hundreds of items, and if you're a good deli, you're going to make everything homemade. That means spending hours smoking all the different kinds of meats, baking your own bread, and having your own pastry counter. On top of that, you know, we have this impression of deli food being a relatively affordable, greasy spoon type of meal. But speaking to different owners, I found out that the cost of these ingredients really add up.
7: And they've become so popular that they're just as expensive as anything.
1: Dan Raskin is the fourth generation owner of Manny's, which is probably the most famous deli in Chicago. It's said to be President Obama's lunch haunt. The cameras followed Obama to Manny's shortly after he became president elect in November 2008. They even used to have an Obama special going for a while. I believe it was a corned beef sandwich, extra lean, with a side of cherry pie. Manny's is super famous for its meat sandwiches corned beef, pastrami, brisket. These used to be the cheaper cuts of meat, but that's totally changed in the last decade.
7: A deli sandwich now is almost $20 when you can go to like a chain sandwich place and a sandwich is $6 or $7. So the perception of what people are getting, obviously our quality and quantity is much better. But people have a perception of what they'll pay for certain things. And they'll pay $60 for a steak, but they won't pay $20 for a sandwich. But the $60 steak almost costs the same price as that sandwich.
1: And that gap is only narrowing. So two
7: years ago, we were charging $13 for a sandwich, and now I'm charging 16 and I'm not making money on them because it's the cost of the raw goods.
1: So think about this. Dan Raskin isn't making money on his best-selling product. And Manny's is one of the big guys.
0: So how long has Manny's been in business, by the way?
1: Since 1942. Manny was Dan's grandfather, Like I mentioned, Dan is fourth generation. He's now in his late 30s. But Chicagoans are lucky in a way that Dan took over. He's one of four kids, and he was the only one that decided he wanted to stay in the family business. Which brings us to the second reason why delis are on the decline.
3: Well, it was very hard work.
1: That's Irving Cutler again.
3: The parents had to be in the store practically all day and all night. And, uh... The young folks were were better educated so they could go into a variety of fields.
1: It's so much work with such low returns that the kids don't want to take over the family business, just like Ziggy Gruber of Kenny and Ziggy said.
5: Over the years, that's what happened with the delicatessens. All the kids ended up becoming doctors and lawyers and business people and stockbrokers and scientists and, and everything like that because their parents didn't want them to work that hard.
9: And then there's also this third point from Betty Dorkin. The
6: deli business is a difficult business, and there aren't a lot of us left. Betty Dorkin
9: is the current owner of Kaufman's, the deli located in Skokie, which is the Chicago suburb where I grew up, and where Kevin gets his fix on Christmas. There was a baby in the background when I interviewed Betty.
6: So I've purchased it from my mother about three years ago, but I've worked for the organization for 30 years.
9: Skokie, at one point, was home to the highest number of living Holocaust survivors in the world. And in 1978, neo-Nazis marched in downtown Skokie, stoking fear in the Jewish community there. Kaufman's original owner, Maury Kaufman, opened the business shortly after he arrived in the U.S. following World War II. It was a period where there was an immense number of Jewish immigrants fleeing Europe for America.
6: Many years ago, we had a customer who came in that ordered a number of round rye breads like five two-pound rounds and one four-pound round, which is not something that we normally do. And when I questioned her about it, she explained to me that her father was a survivor of the camps, and he swore to himself that if he survived, he would never go hungry again, and nor would his family. So it was like a tradition to order these round breads and send them to her kids. And... I happen to think that that was part of the reason why Maury Kaufman went into this business. It was kind of a, I'm not going to be hungry again.
0: Oh, wow. That's the kind of story that gives you chills.
6: Absolutely.
1: But this generation of customers is sadly also fading. And since the days of Kaufman's opening, there hasn't been a similar wave of Jewish immigrants settling in the United States to open up and frequent delis like people were in the post-World War II era. Here's David Sachs.
8: The 1950s was really the kind of last generation of original immigrant Jewish delis, because really that that you had the sort of last generation of Jews immigrating from Eastern Europe, and then that was pretty much it.
0: I mean, sure, maybe there's fewer people coming over from Europe. But like you said, the U.S. still has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel— Could changing palates perhaps be a fourth reason why we're seeing this decline?
1: You know, that's what I thought at first, that there could be this fourth element about taste. Jewish jelly cuisine isn't exactly the healthiest. And I've always had this perception that younger generations are, of course, more into whole foods, less meat-heavy dishes, perhaps. But talking to people, i realized it's a bit more complicated than that. Here's Dan Raskin, the owner of Manny's, again.
7: Barbecue places have become really popular in the last like 10 years. And barbecue uses brisket, which is what corned beef is made out of.
1: And David Sachs told me something similar.
7: The food's not as healthy. Okay, but look at the fastest
8: growing categories of food or like barbecue and fast food and all these other sort of fatty foods and smoked and cured meats. So all of a sudden, you know, they're serving pastrami in the most hot upscale kind of hip restaurants all over the world. It's clearly not a function of it not being trendy.
1: And I can confirm, I went on a road trip across the U.S. this summer and I was almost taken back by how many sort of nouveau barbecue restaurants were around.
0: So then what is it? What exactly is David Sachs getting at here?
8: There's almost this shame associated with this cuisine, I think, among certain generations, that it was something to move beyond for different reasons.
1: And this is the fourth, more complicated reason why delis are on the decline. Shame.
0: When we return, we dive into this fourth reason. Who doesn't like trying new wines? Naked Wines makes it super easy to do just that. Not only do they deliver wine directly to your front door, they also fund some of the world's most experienced, independent winemakers to produce their passion projects. When you join their 300,000 member angel community, you're helping to fund hundreds of exclusive wines you can't find anywhere else. Each wine is the culmination of the passion and artistry of an experienced Vintner. So, join the community and get your angel wings. Get started today and save 100 bucks off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit nakedwines.com slash holidayproof21 and have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and clean up afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. And now, back to our story. So before the break, Rebecca, you introduced this notion of shame. That's a pretty strong word. What does David Sachs mean by that?
1: It's hard for me to answer that. But I also have to say that I immediately recognized and understood the feeling behind what he was saying.
8: When we get to the meaning of why the delis sort of disappeared, it was that dissociation with one's culture and one's roots that's really, you know, indicative of what happened to the Eastern European Jews in North America and in other places. That, you know, it, this was an
9: immigrant food. Ziggy Gruber of Kenny and Ziggy's described it this way.
5: I don't know why it's like that with Jewish people, because, you know, in the United States, Irish people are very proud of being Irish and Italians are being very Italians. Jewish people are like, yes, I'm Jewish, but I don't want anyone to know about it. And that's terrible because I've never been that way. I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know, there's so much anti-Semitism in the world. Who knows?
1: Those statements really struck a chord with me. I had forgotten about this story until David and Ziggy mentioned this. But when I was a kid, my dad used to make my school lunches. And he was by no means a chef. Often what he would do is just put some store-bought corned beef and plop it between two slices of bread with some yellow mustard. Now, I used to go to a Jewish school where this kind of sandwich wouldn't get much attention. But when I was 10, I started going to a public school. And I can't tell you exactly why, but I have a distinct memory of hiding that lunch in my backpack and instead using my allowance money to buy the school hot lunch, even though I loved that corned beef sandwich. The implications for what Ziggy and David said obviously go way beyond a corned beef sandwich. Growing up, I was constantly reminded that Jews have long been a minority. A minority that has been persecuted and faced all different kinds of anti-Semitism for millennia. But what I was always taught growing up is that even with anti-Semitism, Jews have always found a way to survive. From persecution in Egypt to Tsarist Russia, the Holocaust, and beyond. I've always been proud of this. But I would be lying if I told you there weren't moments in my life when I felt like being Jewish was something I didn't want to highlight. Sometimes for my own safety. Sometimes just because I felt embarrassed for reasons I can't really explain. I think there comes at least one point when being quote-unquote different isn't something you want to be. And I could see how a corned beef sandwich could be an unwelcome reminder for someone who struggles with their Jewish identity. When I see my older family members describe delis with such fondness, yes, a large part of it is tied to nostalgia, but the success of delis has also been a reminder of Jewish survival, a survival that has pretty much constantly been at threat. Although in some people's eyes, delis may have entered the endangered species phase. Okay, so I'm eating matzah ball soup with kreplach. Tell me what kreplach is. This is me with my Uncle Maury again at Max and Benny's in the Chicago
5: suburbs. Ground-seasoned beef, usually.
1: I have to say, the average age of customers at Max and Benny's is probably about 75 years old. If that's anything to judge, it may not be good news for the future of delis. But this story doesn't end with the Max and Benny's of the world. There is a new generation
4: that also comes with
1: its own controversialness.
4: My name is Ursula Syker. I'm originally from Los Angeles, but now I live here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am the owner of Jeff and Jude's Deli.
9: I met Ursula
4: Syker in late June after reading about her newly opened deli restaurant in a local magazine. Jeff and Jude's is named after my parents, my dad and my stepmom, so Jeff and Judy Syker. And my dad... Jeff is culturally Jewish he himself is not Jewish he's an ordained minister and then Judy my stepmom is from North Carolina born and raised so when I was thinking on concept of like if I wanted to do a deli what would I do it just kind of hit me one day that I would want to do like a Jewish deli that has elements of southern comfort food in it because like Myself not being actually Jewish, um, but just knowing the food so well from my home growing up and the culture of Los Angeles growing up, I just wanted to do something that was just like true to who I was.
0: Jewish deli meets southern comfort food? Sign me up. Right?
4: Two of
1: my favorite cuisines combined in one. Sign me up, too. But I have to say, Ursula remains extremely self-aware about what she's doing, which does not fall in line with a traditional Jewish deli. Like, she knows she's treading some dangerous waters here.
4: I think it was not like I got pushback, but I anticipated it, and rightfully so, because it does happen. I think that I was just worried about people thinking that I was trying to, like, be somebody I wasn't or do something that wasn't actually, like, you know, accurate or cracked. And I'm not trying to, like, pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Like, I grew up in a very, like, Jewish-centric world, not as a Jewish person. And so I definitely (laughs) didn't want there to be, like, somebody thinking I was, like, trying to take advantage of, like, a culture that I wasn't actually a part of. And so I just did what felt right to me, which was all the things that felt welcoming about being in a Jewish deli growing up, back home, as well as just food that I love that my parents instilled in me.
0: And I understand, Rebecca, that you took her family there to do a little taste test, And that maybe they fall into the group of people sending the Ursulas of the world some pushback. Uh Aha. Yes, indeed.
1: Look, my family are tough cookies to impress, and they very much fall into that category of people who have a strong loyalty to the traditional definition of Jewish delis. Can I get
9: some of any of the deli, like the prepared?
1: Yeah, we actually have um, we have pastrami and corned beef um, by the half pound and lox by the quarter pound. So I took my mom, my dad, and my sister Emily. Yeah, we did. The restaurant was closed that day, but the deli counter was open.
9: Can I have a quarter pound of lox? Yeah, a quarter pound of lox. Yeah.
0: So, what did you order?
1: A bunch of things. We got some corned beef, then a challah, which is this traditional Jewish egg bread, then some original specialties of the house, like a cornflake kugel, a cream cheese hamantashen, and a sweet
4: potato and pimento cheese knish. So it's like, you know, you have a potato knish. It's like a standard Jewish deli staple, but I wanted to make it kind of a tribute to my stepmom, to Judy, and so I, I did sweet potatoes and pimento cheese in there because I hate sweet potato unless you make it spicy a little bit.
0: Sounds delicious. What did your family have to say?
4: Um, I would say this is definitely
2: does not look like the delis from when I grew up, but it's a very hip deli.
1: This is my mom, Nancy, again. And as you can probably tell by her intonation, hip is not a compliment in her books.
2: This place has a definite, very contemporary vibe. This place is definitely a 2021. And then and used to thin cut corned beef. So this is a very ad looking way for me to see corned beef.
5: It's not very much seasoned. There's
0: not enough seasoned. It's cold, too. I would say it's just fair.
1: That's my dad, Joe.
2: I mean, you get the picture. Not so impressed. When I, make, when I think of delis, I think of a place that attracts multi-generations. Is a place that would attract um, younger people who normally wouldn't eat there, when they're looking for nostalgia or going to eat with their grandparents, would might go seek out a deli. And I think this place is different than that because it's would only attract, say, young people in the neighborhood. So I think if people happen to like a particular thing they carry, they might come or if they're stopping by and they want a corned beef sandwich. But I think that it would not attract people looking for a traditional deli. And I think that's what most people seek when they seeking deli food.
0: Well, do you agree with that?
1: My parents were raised with a very particular image of what Adele is, right? And my mom admits that. I don't think she's necessarily taking a personal hit at Jeff and Jude's. Because in a way, the only way to please her in this context is with a time machine.
2: I think this is similar, but is like more contemporary. Um, it's almost a little too hip
0: for me. But you know what, Rebecca? I kind of agree with your mom. You know, my parents are pretty traditionally Chinese, and I don't think they'd be big fans of a modern fusion take on dim sum, for example.
1: I totally get that. And I would also agree with your parents and my mom.
2: I think mean, just like anything, I think mean, everything has a time and a place. And, you know, just like when the Chicago Bulls won the championship, that was the height and peak of their era. Um, Delis were around for a long time, but I think the older generation of Jewish cooks is gone. And so I think then their kids were still somewhat interested, but not as interested as the first generation. And now you're probably in the fourth generation past that time. And I think people, that generation is much more Americanized and much more into the kinds of restaurants that their generation embraces.
1: I have to say that while I agree with so much of what my mom is saying, I do have a bit more optimism than her when it comes to the future of delis.
0: Meaning you think the younger generation of delis are a sort of saving grace?
1: Not so much so, but some people say that, like Dan Raskin.
7: I actually think that any place that opens up that puts Jewish deli items on their menu helps the current delis out. Um, It just brings attention and there's more people buying and selling like I mean, outside of Jewish people in Chicago, there's not a lot of people who know what mass ball soup is. So the more places that open it and have it on their menu, the more people know what it is.
1: And I think that's true. You have newer delis carrying on the old world recipes like mamala's in Boston, End in Brooklyn, Wexler's Deli in Los Angeles. But moreover, what I'm saying is, I think there are still older delis living up to the tradition, and I think they will continue to do so. Take Manny's, Take Katz's in New York, Take Kaufman's, where Kevin and I have been buying pastrami for ages. There may be fewer delis now, but those few are strong and mighty.
0: So, what do you think the secret is for those that have made it this far? How are they keeping the deli alive?
1: I think they all have some sort of direct connection to the culture, the tradition, whether they've seen it growing up by working in the family business starting from a young age, or they've maybe heard stories from their parents and grandparents. They know what a traditional deli walks, talks, acts, and feels like. And I think they feel this mix of personal desire and maybe a bit of family pressure and responsibility to carry on the legacy. Here's Ziggy Gruber again.
5: Who knows what's going to be, but I'll tell you this. I'm very fortunate. I have two children. Mm. Those two girls, they come to the deli every day. And when they get older, we'll start breaking them in too. So, you know, they can be the fourth generation. So that's what I feel or I hope the future is for them because we need to perpetuate this cuisine. We need to perpetuate this culture. And it's very important, and hopefully they'll take a spark to it, and hopefully they will press on with it.
1: And this was author David Sachs's take.
8: As long as it's this genuine thing, and these people are trying to not only preserve the culture, but actually keep it alive, and by keeping it alive, doing new things with it, putting their stamp on it, making it relevant for an entire new generation of people who want to eat Jewish food, then that's the furthest thing from dying, and that's that's what saving the deli is, right? It's, it's preserving that which is there, like a cucumber in its delicious brine.
1: So if you want to save the deli, you got to keep supporting it. Keep going and ordering your favorite sandwich, whether it's corned beef or pastrami, whether you want borscht or matzo ball soup, just go. Whether you're young or old, Jewish or not Jewish. Like people have been saying throughout this episode, the food is only one part of what makes a deli a deli. It's the atmosphere. It's the environment. It's really about the people. By dining at these establishments, you're helping preserve a culture. Even if that means paying a bit more. Remember what Dan Raskin said, it costs the same amount to make a corned beef sandwich as it does a $60 steak at a fine dining restaurant. But if you're willing and able to pay a bit more, even if it's just an occasional splurge, delis will pay us all back by staying alive. So when it comes to the next generation, delis won't just be something we reminisce about, but something we can share with our loved ones and future deli-goers. Over a corned beef sandwich, with plenty of kibitzing and other kinds of chatter in between. How many years have you been coming here? I
3: don't know, 20. You know, it's been here for quite a while, and uh, it's a good restaurant.
0: Thanks to Rebecca Rosman for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters.
9: I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert.
8: I'm Terrence
0: Johnson, and I'm the associate producer.
2: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer.
0: Scoring, sound design, and mixing by... Matt Boynton. And... Anya Gjeshik Of Ultraviolet Audio. Ryan Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. and Margolis. Is our director of post production, and our line producer is... Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by
3: Angela Yang.
0: Special thanks to Nancy and Joe Rosman, Morris Rosman, Sarah Pearlstein Sachs, and Harry Sachs. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season Pete and Jerry's, Kohler, Naked Wines, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, and Green Pan Cookware. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.